I like the last part of that psalm that says the desire of the wicked will perish. And that's something that as uh, believers we must always remember. We have a lot of wicked people in our culture, in our nation, who are in rebellion against God and God's word and God's standard and God's creation mandate. And as it says here in this psalm, that God's righteousness endures forever and his horn, his strength will be exalted with honor and that the wicked will see it and be grieved. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. And that is what will happen to the wicked and we must understand that, that they may seem to be prevailing right now but the wicked will perish unless they repent and turn to Christ and be saved they will perish because they are in rebellion against the Lord so let us be encouraged by the fact that God is faithful to his promises to punish the wicked and with that being said let us go before the Lord in prayer Lord, we just read in your word. It tells us, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. And Lord, we're living in a culture, in a nation, where rather than delighting in your commandments, men rather delight in their own selves, delight in worshiping themselves, delight in making themselves out to be some kind of of God or the secular worldview lies to people and tells them that they're their own gods that uh, truth is subjective that it, it depends on who is coming from that everybody has their personal truth their personal belief system their own autonomy but Lord your word testifies against them your word tells us that those who fear you are the ones who are truly blessed. Those who worship you as the one true God are the one in whom you delight. And Lord, my prayer this morning uh, for those who hear this, who will hear this on the uh, podcast and sermon audio and those who hear it right now here in this congregation. My prayer is that for the Christian that we not give in to what the culture is trying to take us into in a denial and a rejection of you, a rejection of your created order, a rejection of how you said that the world should be governed. But Lord, let us stand firm in your truth. Let us be those who fear you, fear your commands, who delight greatly in your commandments. Because, Lord, your word says the generation of the upright will be blessed. So that tells us, Lord, that those who are not upright, they will not be blessed. Lord, let us be people of righteousness, righteousness which comes from you, righteousness that has been uh, imputed on us uh, through salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, your word says unto the upright there arises light in the darkness. Lord Jesus told us that we are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
for those of us who are believers in here, we are sent to be light in the midst of darkness. Father, anytime light encounters darkness, darkness flees. So, Lord, as we go out into our world each and every day as a, as a church family, as, as individuals who make up your body, Lord, let us know, let us affirm that we are light in the midst of darkness. We are to point people to the light of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be bold in being that light. As Jesus said, not hiding our light under a bushel, but Lord, letting our light shine before men that they may see our good works, good works which come from our salvation, that come from us having uh, regenerated hearts, that come from us having a new heart and a new nature, that men may see that and glorify the Father who is in heaven. Lord, your word says a good man deals graciously and lends. He would guide his affairs with discretion. In other words, uh, that, that good man and that good Christian woman won't live a life of debauchery, a life of, of, of sin, a life filled with sin. But we will use discretion. We will be orderly with our lives. And we will never be shaken. Though forces may come up against us, we will not be shaken. And Lord, we will not be afraid of evil tidings. When evil comes up against us, when we see evil going on in the world, Lord, it will, it, will, it will not shake us. We will not be afraid of it. We know its source comes from the enemy of our souls, who is the devil. But Lord, rather when we see evil, when we encounter evil, our heart will be steadfast, trusting in you. And our heart is established. We will not be afraid. Lord, help us to have, take courage in you. Take courage in your word. Take courage in your promises. And Lord, as we see the wicked, we call them to repentance. To repent of their wickedness. To repent of their rebellion. To turn and be saved. While you have yet to come back. Because Father, there will come a day when they don't turn to you and be saved. That they will stand before your judgment seat. And you will tell them the most terrifying words in all the English language. I never knew you depart from me into the everlasting fire where there will be uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth, where you will be prepared for the devil and his angels. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and there will be eternal sorrow and conscious felt torment forever and ever and ever. Lord, may they repent of their sins. All unbelievers, all those who reject you, all those who deny you, all those who shake their fists at you, Father. May they turn to you and be saved. And Father, we pray for our other brethren, the faithful brethren in Christ, as Paul said in Colossians 1 and 2. We thank you for the faithful brethren who are ministering Christ this morning at all of our sister churches and affiliated 
congregations, uh, Anderson Bible, uh, Grace Fellowship, Redeemer Church, Christian Fellowship, Iron City, uh, Mountain View uh, Church, First Baptist Lionville. Lord, we thank you for all those men. And here at the Living Church also, all of us, Lord, that we continue to shepherd the flock of God with good oversight to not strive for greedy gain, but, Lord, to serve your people by ministering to them through the ministry of your word by way of the Holy Spirit. And, Lord, I pray this morning that you be upon us with your blessings. Bless our church family as we hear the word for the sake of your church and your glory. May you be glorified in the preaching of the word this morning and in the hearing of your word. Lord, uh, remove all distractions from us. And may we see Christ as we look at more about your providence as we see laid out in this sixth chapter of the book of Esther. Lord, fill me with your spirit that I may preach to your glory and send your spirit to illuminate your truths to us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let us turn to Esther, the sixth chapter. We're in the sixth week, the sixth sermon in our series in this uh, book. We're going to spend a lot of time on the providence of God and learning more about it. We've been uh, preaching about it the last uh, few uh, weeks. And this morning, we're going to look at the beauty of God's providence. And I don't know about you, but just like last week, this chapter reads like a Shakespearean play. There's so much drama and so much irony in this passage. But as I said last week and I say this week, God is the greatest story writer. God writes the best stories. Remember, God wrote the book of Esther. He used men, sinful men, to write his word. They were, as, as Paul, I'm sorry, as Peter says, under the inspiration of God. Actually, it was Paul who said, all scripture is by inspiration of God. So this is God-breathed word. And it is a case of irony. If you don't know what irony is, you will after this chapter. It is a literary term. That in essence means the outcome of events in a story is contrary to what is expected. And we as the readers get to see what the characters don't see. We know what's going to happen, although the characters don't know. We know how the tables are going to be turned on Haman, but Haman doesn't know. He thinks that he is setting up himself to be honored. And <laughs> And we're going to see through providence that that is not the case. So we're going to read the passage and um, look at the doctrine of providence and answer some questions and look at observations and then our principles. So picking up at the first verse, and this is, um, you know, Esther asked the king. She went before him and uh, asked about coming to the banquet. And so this is that same night. 
And the events of this chapter take uh, place five years after the events of chapter two, by the way. So this is basically five years later uh, when Mordecai is going to be honored after, you know, he discovered the plot by the two eunuchs to kill the king. So this is kind of fast forwarding five years. But anyway, it says that night the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bictana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers, who sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Then the king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Of course, the answer is none. And the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. Remember, this is five years later. So the king said, who was in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Remember those 75, tall, 75 foot tall gallows? The king's servant said to him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king asked him, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now I'm going to stop at this point. Who do you think Haman thinks the king is talking about? himself now Haman thought in his heart whom would the king delight to honor more than me and Haman answered the king for the man whom the king delights to honor <laughs> let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn and a horse on which the king has ridden which has a royal crest placed on his head then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of the one of the king's most noble princess, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested and do so for Mordecai. <laughs> The Jew who sits within the king's gate, leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. <laughs> so Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai, and led him on horseback through the city square, and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Now, why do you think he was so obedient in doing this? Because if he wasn't, off with his head. Afterwards, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you began to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. Those are very prophetic words. While they were still talking with him, the king's units came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet, which Esther had prepared. I just couldn't help but give a little commentary in there. So we see the irony that Haman was saying all this happened for the man who the king was to honor, thinking that it was going to be himself. But it was actually the man that he hated. And it was Mordecai. That's the irony in there. I want to talk a little bit more in depth about the doctrine of providence. I have this book that Bob gave me called Providence by 
John Piper. It's a pretty, uh, it's about 700 pages, but it's, it's a very good book. It talks about the doctrine of providence. And I just want to highlight some things that I've been reading about providence. We talked about it as God's overall superintending of the lives of his people, that God is not uh, passive in our lives. So Piper says this in one section. He says, God does not simply see as a passive bystander. As God, he is never merely an observer. He is not a passive observer of the world and not a passive predictor of the future. Wherever God is looking, he is acting. In other words, there's profound theological reason for why God's providence does not merely his seeing but rather his seeing too so God not only sees but he also does the secular worldview doesn't believe in a creator or a transcendent power who created everything they believe in uh, evolution that there's not a uh, divine creator or uh, that the uh, cosmos didn't come together by some intelligent design they believe that everything just kind of evolved. And those who do believe in theistic evolution, as they call it, they believe that there was a creator, but after God created the world, he kind of left everything to itself. So basically, they believe that all the universe is on autopilot, that God created everything in six days and just kind of stepped away and just let the earth govern itself. But the doctrine of providence tells us different. It tells us that God is actively active in the world, in our lives. As R.C. Sproul said, God is the moving mover. He is moving, but he is also a mover. He is a God who does. He is not a passive God just kind of letting things happen willy-nilly. God is, 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 is active in essence in being God. Piper says in another section that God is directing, he is disposing, and he is governing all creatures, actions, and things. That he is directing our lives. That he is governing all creatures, both great and small. There's not a Rogue molecule, as Aussie Sproul famously said, there's not a rogue molecule in all the universe. If one molecule gets out of order, the whole universe collapses. And then we will have ensuing chaos and instant death. The reformers said that all things are God things. You know, sometimes things happen to people say, oh, that was a God thing. <laughs> no, everything is a God thing. They're not just certain spectacular things that happen that people say, oh, that's a God thing. No, everything is a God thing. Everything that happens, whether good or bad, is a God thing. God is always doing. God is always active. The great British preacher Charles Spurgeon preached about 
providence. And he talked about the difference between providence and fate. Because you have many people who believe in uh, fate and coincidence and karma, happenstance, luck. All those terms, as as I said several times, come from Eastern religions, which are pagan religions. You know, Buddhism, Hinduism, Hinduism, and such. New Age uh, churches, New Age theology, rather, which is a false theology. So Spurgeon said that the biblical view of God's providence differs from fate. Fate originates from Greek mythology. That's where it originates from, the Greek gods. So Spurgeon says this in his sermon on providence from Ezekiel 1, verses 15 through 19. He says, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens that the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an ant over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of a devastating pestilence. He goes on to say, you will say this morning our minister is a fatalist. Your minister is no such thing. Some would say, ah, he believes in fate. This is Spurgeon speaking. He does not believe in fate at all. What is fate? Fate is this. Whatever is, must be. You ever hear people say that sometimes? Whatever is, must be, or it is what it is. Whatever happens, just happens. That's what fate is. He says, but there's a difference between that and providence. He says, providence says, Whatever God ordains must be. But the wisdom of God never ordains anything without a purpose. Everything in this world is working for some great end. Fate does not say that. Fate simply says that things must be. Providence says God moves the wheels alone and there they are. So faith, in essence, is just kind of throwing everything up and whatever happens was supposed to happen. And sometimes we can say that, and it sounds good. It sounds like a great platitude that whatever happens just happens. It happened because it was supposed to happen. But no, friend, providence has a purpose. Providence is God-ordained. And what that means for our lives and what that means for this story that we see, that everything that is happening in this chapter is because God ordained it to happen. God ordained, as we're going to see, the king to lose sleep. It was God who caused that, him to have insomnia, so that he may may read the Chronicles, and so that he may see that he forgot to honor Mordecai. And so that Mordecai could be honored and Haman be hanged on the same gallows that he made for Mordecai. It was all God ordained. It, it wasn't just a stroke of bad luck that Haman had. It wasn't his 
his his karma. You know, you you get back what you put out, as people say. That's karma. Don't say that, Christian. Don't say that. Don't say people get back what they put out. That's karma. That's that's new age spirituality. That's paganism. When people say, you know, you put out negative energy, you're going to get it back. That's karma. That's not biblical. That's not of God. But I hear a lot of people say that. Hear positive vibes. You hear people say that all the time. About good vibes only. Positive vibes. All that is new age spiritual nonsense. It's kaput because what it does, it says that God is not active in this world. But rather, we are the agents <laughs> of change. We are the agents of what happens because we're in essence God and we can make things happen just by, quote, putting out positive energy. Or we can make bad things happen by putting out negative energy. It makes man the center. You see how that works? Instead of making God the center. Providence puts God at the center, that God ordains all things, that God wills all things, that God allows all things. God, when we say God is in control, that's what we have to mean. He is in control of both the good and the bad. He is in control of both the pestilence, the famine, and the plenty. He is God of both the sick and the well. He is God who ordains both. Don't you know it was God who ordained Job to be stricken with sickness by Satan? It was God who ordained that. But God had a great purpose for that. God has a purpose in his providence. Fate doesn't have a purpose. Things just happen because they happen for, for no discernible reason. So that's how we have to look at the providence of God and as we look in this chapter we're going to see that this whole funny story right here was all God because God writes the best stories amen so what is the author's purpose to lead the reader to uh, rapidly see the amazing acts of providence in order to see even greater works that God will perform that God turns the tables on the enemies of his people for his glory. And God is going to do that. He's going to turn the tables. He's going to turn the tables on his enemies. The enemies of his people for his glory. We're going to see him do that. What does God want to accomplish through the author? Again, he wants to show us that he's working his purposes out. That he works through human agents to accomplish his will. God uses whomever he wills to accomplish his purposes. He uses whomever he wills. God is working in this world, and his work in this world be manifested through divine providence. That's the one sentence summary of this chapter in context. That God's work in this world will be manifested through his providence as he works in the hearts of men. We see his work in the world manifested here. 
There are a couple of values that this chapter teaches us that are relevant today. Again, divine providence, but also pride and humiliation. In chapter 5, we saw that Haman was filled with pride as the queen prepared the banquet because he thought it was going to be about him. <laughs> and now he would be forced to honor the very man whose people he plotted to destroy, which would lead to his downfall. Remember we talked about pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. And that's what we see taking place here. So the big idea is that the beauty of God's unseen providence provides help and hope. And it often comes from surprising places. When we least think it or where we least think it, we see providence in action. So let's look at uh, expository, look at the text, looking at verses 1 through 5. So help and hope come to God's people through apparently insignificant events the fact that the king couldn't sleep seems very insignificant we see that he has what insomnia it says that night the king could not sleep he had insomnia insomnia is nothing that a good book can't cure right <laughs> if you have a hard time falling asleep start praying or start reading your bible what happens? That sleep just, whoo, it comes over you quick. You can't sleep. You know, five, six, seven years ago, there was a thing on Facebook. If people were up in the middle of the night, they would say, who's up with me? You know, <laughs> I don't know if people still do that or not on Facebook. I know that was a that was a thing about five, six, seven years ago. You know, people put on Facebook, who's up with me? You know, uh, because... Their minds are racing and they can't sleep. We know how insomnia feels, right? When you just can't go to sleep no matter what. I think most times it's, it's because our minds are racing, because we're probably looking at our phones before we go to bed, or looking at TikTok videos, <laughs> and our minds are just not uh, able to rest. So the king could not sleep. So what did he do? He asked one of his men to bring the books of the records of the chronicles and basically what kings did back then is uh, all kingdoms they kept records of all the feats of the king the wars they won you know stuff like that kind of like a congressional record you know they kept all the acts of the king all the edicts and everything that the king had issued and they hardly ever read those things they don't they don't sit back and read read those things mostly but Somehow, God ordained the king to read this at this point. And we're going to see why, right? So he reads the Chronicles, and he found written, and remember this was five years after this event happened, that Mordecai had told uh, about the two eunuchs who had plotted to kill him. So he recalled that Mordecai was not honored for saving his life. So what the king decided to do was uh, correct this deficiency. And this was very important in ancient Persian culture. <coughs> that correcting the deficiency is of great importance for those kings because it is the concept of honor. They, they valued honoring people. They valued being honored and they valued honoring people. 
they did not want people to be overlooked from being honored. So they, that is something they placed a great value on. So honor and dignity uh, were considered highly significant at this period in, in, in human history. During the Middle Persian era, uh, the failure to extend honor and dignity to someone who was deserving was an affront to what was proper and what was socially correct. So if a king or someone else had failed to honor someone, it was like a slight to them. It was almost like a sin, like, you know, how dare they not honor someone? Because honor was very important in Persian culture or ancient cultures, period. I mean, we still honor people now. <coughs> you know, you had like the Congressional Medal of Honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, you know, all these different things that we do to bestow honor on people. That came from ancient cultures who believed in honoring people. So when the king saw that Mordecai wasn't honored, then guess what? He sprung into action. So what did he do? He calls for Haman. And Haman was going to inform the king <laughs> about the gallows that were made for Mordecai, or so he thought. So next we see help and hope from God coming through the flaws and sins of certain men. So it says here, Haman came in and the king asked him, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now, Haman didn't know who he was talking about. Haman thought he was talking about himself. So Haman lifted up in pride, unknowingly instructs the king in how to honor Mordecai, his enemy. He requests to be treated like the king and requesting a royal robe. That was a big deal right there. He requests the man to be honored publicly. Let it be seen. Let it be, you know, out in front of a lot of people. And this shows you all that we're seeing here is the pride that resides in Haman's heart because this is how he wishes to be honored. Just imagine for a second. You're about to have a milestone birthday. Let's say 50 or 60 or 70 years old. And someone comes to you and says, how do you want to be honored at your birthday? How do you want to be honored? You say, well, I want a new car. <laughs> I want a new house. I want some nice clothes. I want a nice gift card. You know, you want all these big things. What that does inevitably is it exposes what lies in our heart. And so with Haman, he's exposing his heart as being one what? Full of pride because he wants all this stuff to be done. He wants to wear the king's robe. He wants to be honored publicly. You know, he wants everyone to see it. He wants to be treated like the king because that's what lies in his heart. That's the pride being exposed. And Haman doesn't just desire to be honored publicly. He wants the people of the highest rank, the princess, to ensure that it happens. He wants the princess to be involved. Because he says here in, in, in verse 6 again, Who would the king delight to honor more than me? And then he said, A horse? And the king, I'm sorry, and the horse has a royal crest placed on the head. I don't know if y'all seen depictions of 
ancient horse that had like a little crown or something on his on his head. He wanted the horse to have a crown on it. Oh, what pride. And then let it be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes. So he wanted the princess to be involved in it also. Man, what pride this dude had. It is so great. It reminds me of a couple of uh, scriptures, again, as I read last week. Proverbs 16 and 18, and we have to always be reminded of it, that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. At the heart of destruction is pride. It's sinful pride. It is always at the heart. Before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty. And before honor is humility. This is Proverbs 18 and 12. Before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty. It is lifted up. All people who are brought down, it is because of pride. It is because of pride. The sin of pride never has a good ending to it. It never has a good ending. It never has a good ending. It will always bring a person down. Because their pride blinds them. And we see this with Haman. And as a second in command, Haman had to oblige the king. He had to do what he said that he was going to do to the man whom the king delighted to honor. Whether it was him or not, he had to do it because he was second in command to the king. So he had to do it. Or else he was going to meet certain death. So some surprises happened. Verse 11. So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai. Because the king told him what? Go on to Mordecai. In the city square. I'm sorry. Parade him on horseback through the city square. So this is the public honoring him. Public seeing him. Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And afterwards Mordecai went back to the king's gate. And Haman hurried to his house mourning with his head covered. Of course. He, shame, exactly. That's what I thought about when I read that. He was brought low. He was humiliated. Humility is at the root of the word humiliation. So in the surprise reversal of what Haman hoped for, it was Mordecai whom he was forced to bestow honor. And this drastically changed Haman's plot to have Mordecai and the Jews killed. He didn't know what to do now because he can't possibly try to kill the man who the king desired to honor, could he? No, he didn't have the uh, gall to do that. So Haman hurried home to mourn with his family. And his pride was turned into humiliation <laughs> because he hurried to his house. His head was covered because of shame. And Haman told his wife and all his friends everything that had happened to him. I can only imagine what he said. And Zeresh, his wife, who was a pagan, she said something prophetic. As I said when I was reading this in the second part of verse 13. 
She said, you will not prevail against him, but surely will fall before him. This was the Lord's providence in giving her the knowledge to say that. It was God who gave her the knowledge to say that prophetically. It reminds me of the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 3 where God uh, told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And when he was speaking of you, he was talking about all of his descendants, all of his uh, natural descendants, the Jewish people, and all of his spiritual descendants who are Christians. So God told Abraham that I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. Guess who was cursing God's people? Haman. And guess who God was going to curse? Haman. God was fulfilling that promise that he made to Abraham. So with that being said, let's look at our principles here. Number one, Mordecai's response to honor demonstrates humility, while Haman's response to honor fosters pride and arrogance. We see again the contrast between pride and humility. And we saw that originate back in chapter 5. Well, Haman was joyful in heart at the prospects of the banquet. But then when he saw Mordecai, guess what? His old countenance changed. He was filled with indignation. But Haman restrained himself and he went to his wife and told her about it. And they told him to make a gallows of 50 cubits high, about 75 feet. But we see the humility of Mordecai. He did not look to himself to be exalted like Haman did. So again, we see the contrast between humility and pride and arrogance. Pride and arrogance never works, friends. It never, ever does. It does not work. It can't work. Number two, ultimately, evil planned against God's people will not prevail. Christian, know that and understand that. Any evil schemes that people plan against God's people will not prevail. They can't prevail. It says here in Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11, listen to this encouragement. The Lord brings the counsels of the nations or the heathens to nothing. He makes the plans of the pagans or peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. God will bring the plans of evil people to nothing. These people in our culture who are trying to destroy the church, who are trying to redefine marriage, who are trying to redefine uh, sex, we're trying to turn this world upside down into all types of sexual perversions and permissiveness. They are not going to prevail. They seem to be gaining ground, but they will not prevail. 
they can't prevail because it is a faulty worldview. God will prevail. He will bring their plans to nothing. He will bring their plans to nothing. We must know that it is God who ultimately saves his people, not us. He does the saving. The Lord alone saves to the utmost. He will save his people. He will preserve his people. Amen. Principle number three, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There we go again. Pride does not work. Pride is not good. God resists the proud. In other words, God is against the proud, those who are haughty, those who are high-minded, as we used to say. He is against them, but he gives grace to those who are humble. God is opposed to every proud person who lifts himself up against him because that's what pride does. Pride lifts itself up against God. And those who are proud do that. They ultimately set themselves up as God. But God is against them, friends. First Peter 5 says here, Younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. All you be submissive to one another and be clothed in or with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your cares upon him for he cares for you. You see what the Bible calls us to? The Bible doesn't call us to pride. The Bible calls us to what? Humility. And we find that humility ultimately fulfilled in who? In Christ. Christ is the greatest example of humility as the God-man. He humbled himself, as Paul said in Philippians 2, even unto death, death on a cross. He humbled himself as the God-man on that cross. When the, the night before the cross, he says he had to take the cup of suffering because he said, nevertheless, not your will, but my will be done. He humbled himself to do what the Father had called him to do. He wasn't some rebel. Christ wasn't an anarchist rebelling against God. No, he willingly went to the cross. He knew what he came to do, and he went and did it. It takes a lot of humility to fulfill that. And Christ, as the God-man, fulfilled his purpose by going to the cross, dying as our substitute, bearing the wrath of God against all sin. That's the humility that Christ had. His humility took him to the cross to bear our sins, to bear the curse of dying on the cross. Curse is every man who dies on a tree. He bore the curse of sin. He bore the curse of the law in selfless humility. He is our arch example of what it means to be humble. We ought to be humble like our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And the fourth principle we see in this passage is we think about Mordecai being overlooked at first. Five years later, the king can't sleep and he asks for the king's record to be opened. In due season, we will be rewarded by the Lord. In due season. Galatians 6 and 9 tells us that in due season it says here in Galatians 6 Paul is telling the saints this and let us not grow weary while doing good the good that is a product of our salvation for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart if we do not faint if we do not give up that is God's call for us as believers to persevere because guess what? In due season, I'm not one of those prosperity preachers that's going to tell you this is your season. <laughs> this is your due season. <laughs> I've seen so many pre uh, these false preachers get up and say, this is your due season. Our due season can be when we stand before the Lord and he says to us, well done. The point is we persevere as believers. God works in us. Paul tells us to work out our own salvation with trembling. For it is him, it is God who works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. It is God who works in us. And as God works in us, guess what? We persevere. What did Paul say? Looking forward, forgetting the things that are behind, and looking forward to those things which are ahead. And what does he say he does? He presses what? Towards the mark of the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus our Lord he's pressing forward he's persevering he told Timothy fight the good fight of faith he told him this as he knew that he was about to die second Timothy he says fight the good fight and he said at the end of his life I have fought the good fight of faith I have finished the race and now there's laid up for me a crown of glory why could Paul say that? Because he knew that he was going to be rewarded by the Lord. That his due season was coming. He did not receive it in his life. As the great apostle of the church. We must be encouraged as believers to know that we will be rewarded by the Lord. That is who our reward is going to come from. And that is the only reward that matters. It's okay to, you know, for people to acknowledge things that we've done, but they're empty. Those trophies and those plaques for employee of the month or employee of the year or certificates that you get on your job, yes, they're important. They have their place. But guess what? Those things are going to get old one day. One day they're going to be in one of those dumpsters that you see besides people's houses when their loved one dies and they got to figure out what to do with all that junk. That's what's going to happen. It's going to be long gone. Because it's just stuff. What matters 
is being rewarded by the Lord. And that is our goal, to be rewarded by God, to persevere, to know that in due season, we will reap if we do not lose heart, if we don't give up, if we don't faint, if we don't falter, if we say, Lord, I'm done, I'm tired, I'm through. No, saint, persevere, because we know that what? In due season, in due season. Think about Christ. Christ did not grow weary on the Via Della Rosa, the, the road to the cross. He didn't grow weary. The great writer in Hebrews 12 tells us that for the glory set before him, Christ endured the cross because he saw the glory. And what was his glory? Being seated beside God at his right hand. That glory, him seeing himself when he was raised from the dead and him knowing that he was going to be seated at his father's right hand because of that glory guess what he went to the cross that's what the writer said in Hebrews 12 1 through 2 that for the glory set before him he endured the cross he endured those six hours of the most agony that any that no other human being could ever feel because he alone was bearing our sins on that cross no one will ever experience any pain like that in their life the most excruciating pain that a human being will ever face would never match the pain and agony that Christ felt on the cross but guess what he endured that the glory of being at the right hand of the Father was set before him. And so he endured it. How much less us who have to endure someone saying something that hurts our feelings <laughs> or enduring our bad, disobedient children or suffering through a bad marriage or having bad relationships or having a hard job to go to it's not that those things don't matter, but they're not the greatest suffering compared to our Savior. But what does God still tell us to do? Don't grow what? Weary in doing good. Don't grow weary in being a faithful employee. Don't grow weary in being a, the best parent that you can be. Don't grow weary being the best husband or the best wife or the best child or the best student or the best, best grandparent. Don't grow weary in doing that. Don't grow weary. Mordecai, five years, not acknowledged for discovering the plot to save the king's life. <coughs> but guess who didn't forget? God. God didn't forget. And guess what? He's not going to forget us. Amen? So what are some gospel implications here? First question. Mordecai asked this question. Or the king asked this question too. Whom will the king honor? 
It is the God-man, Jesus Christ. Who is worthy of all honor. It's not Mordecai. To whom will the king honor? It is Christ. Christ is the king that we are called to honor. That is the gospel implication. Paul says here in Philippians 2, beginning at verse 9, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, Christ, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, of things on earth, and those under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's whom the king, that's the king rather whom we ought to honor, is Jesus Christ. Yes, the Persian king in here wanted to honor the man who saved his life. But we see a king who is worthy of a greater honor, and that is Christ. And he is the one to whom we ought to honor above everyone else. And Paul tells us, he has a name which is above every name. God highly exalted him. There's no one exalted higher than Jesus. No one. There's no pedestal that you can put any earthly man on that could be higher than where Jesus is. And at his name, every knee is going to bow. The secularist, the atheist, the God denier, the God rejecter, guess what? They're going to have to bow their knee. They're going to have to confess that what? Jesus Christ is Lord. Although they have rejected him all of their life. Although they have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, as Paul said in Romans 1, guess what? They are going to have to stand and say, Jesus, you are Lord. Think about that. Think about the irony in that. That they rejected Christ. They shook their fist at God and said, you don't exist. You didn't create this world. You didn't create me. But then they're going to have to turn around and say, you are Lord. Why? Because he alone is the king worthy of worship. They either bow now or bow later. That's in my applications. To whom will the Lord look upon? He who is of a contrite heart. He who is humble. Isaiah spoke of this in Isaiah 66. He answered that question on whom will the Lord look? Remember, God resists the proud. He resists the proud. God says, but on this one I will look on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, contrite meaning humble, and who trembles at my word. That's who God will honor. That's who the Lord will look upon, not the proud, not the haughty, not the, the ones who are so secure in themselves. We're like grass people. The Bible says, all flesh is grass. 
every time I hear about the death of someone, especially someone that I know, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. All flesh is grass. The older you get, the more you begin to recognize your own mortality. It happens just like that. The assistant football coach at Jacksonville State University had a heart attack two weeks ago, 56 years old. He just got there, um, uh, you know, a month ago when uh, Rich Rod, you know, became a new coach up there. He had, he had only been in Jacksonville for a month. All flesh is grass. Our life is so transient. We're we're literally here today and gone. All of us are even mine. You know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a transcendent person. That that should humble us. That should humble us. That Lord, I'm I'm just grass. My life has has, has significance because I'm an image bearer of God, as we all are. But when it comes to the pride of man, what should humble anybody is that you're going to die one day and you don't know when and you don't know how. You don't know under what circumstances you're going to die. You can't control your death date. That should humble anyone. You have no control over your life like you think. You don't know if you're going to have a car accident and become paralyzed from the waist down or the neck down or not. That should give us a what? A humble and contrite heart to show our frailty as human beings. That we are at the total mercy of God. That's how, remember, humility is having a right estimation of yourself before a holy and righteous God. When we see our holy and righteous God is we look at ourselves and say, no, we just shrink because we're not all that. Those are the ones that God looks upon. And may God give us that kind of heart. Number three, the gospel humbles our pride because, again, it forces us to acknowledge that our life's affairs are governed by the providence of God and not us. The gospel should humble our pride. All of the affairs of our life are governed by the providence of God. Remember, it's not about fate. It's not about coincidence. It's not about happenstance. It's not, it's not by luck or karma. It is by the providence of God superintending our lives. That should humble us. It is God who governs the affairs of all of our lives. All of our lives. Newsflash, friends. We're not in control. We're not in control. It is God. And number four, we see the invisible hand of God changing history yet again, even in the insignificant. In this passage, we see that. Providence has been called by some reformers the invisible hand of God. Do you know that history is governed by God? History, world history is God's history. Why? Because God has superintended, providentially superintended everything that has ever happened since in the beginning God made the heavens and the earth. 
since the, you know, even before that he was in control, <laughs> okay? When there was just he and himself, delighting in himself. God was always in control. All the events of world history that have happened through all the millennia of world history and human history, God has been in control of it all. Who controlled human events that Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53 and 700 years later that prophecy came true through the crucifixion of Christ? Who controlled the events of the intervening 700 years? Man couldn't possibly do that. We can't control what's going to happen 700 years from now. We don't know we're going to be here 700 years from now. I pray that the Lord comes quickly. <laughs> okay. But we can't control what's going to happen 700 years from now. We have no control over it. Do we? Only God does. Applications. Again, bow now or bow later. Who had to bow? Haman. He was upset because, remember, Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him. But guess what? He's the one who's going to have to bow. Number two, exalt Christ as Lord in our hearts. We trust in his providence. We exalt him as Lord, acknowledging that he is Lord over our life, that he is in control, that he is governing all our affairs, that no, our life is not out of control like we feel sometimes, right? Don't we feel that way sometimes? That our life is just out of control. Oh, Lord, I, 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 I don't know what to do. I'm having fits. My life is out of control. You know why it's out of control? Because we're trying to control it. That's facts. Our life is out of control because we're trying to do what? We're, we're, so, we're so sinful. I'm including myself in this because I'm, I'm a sinner saved by grace. We're so sinful that not only do we try to control our life, we try to control the outcome. <laughs> we try to control the outcome of events in our life. We fail so miserably, don't we? Who's played the game Jenga before? You know, stacking those uh, little wood blocks. And all of a sudden you see it kind of wobbling and then next thing you know they just do what they just fall and you can't control where they fall you can't control how fast they fall you just know that they just start what falling it's almost like slow motion like no they just fall and they fall wherever they may because guess what you can't control that outcome our life is the same way. We can't control the outcome because God is ultimately in control. Amen? Pray for and cultivate humility. Resist the temptation toward pride. <laughs> like we said last week, humility is something that has to be sought. It's not natural to the human condition. Pride is. Pride is our default because sin is our default. Remember, sin remains in us, not on us, because we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ, but sin remains in our nature. 
we are so prone to pride that, again, when we say we don't have pride, we're being proud of our humility. <laughs> so pride is our default. So we have to pray for and cultivate humility. Lord, help me to be humble. Lord, show me how to foster humility. Lord, help me to take the humble path at work. Don't be so proud to say, oh, I'm above doing this, or I'm above doing that. Show your humility at work. Show your humility with your friends. You know, I know a good example of showing humility. Take your past out to eat and pray and, and, and pay for them. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But anyway, but put yourself in situations where you can be, that forces you to be humble, forces you to be second, forces you to be third. I remember in our former uh, denomination, uh, we used to have our little conventions and stuff, and afterwards they would have a meal served, and uh, guess who got to eat first? All the bishops and, and overseers, and us peasants had to stand in line and wait on our food while they sat down and had their food brought to them. And us peasants had to stand in that long line. You know, they got the nice seats up front near the serving table, and we just had to sit where we could when we went to Pentecost. My in-laws know what I'm talking about. My wife does, too. You know, that long line, we had to stand in and wait while all the bishops and their wives and the overseers and their wives ate first. Is that humility? No. But instead of saying, no, let's let everybody else eat first and we eat last. Again, it has to be cultivated. It has to be pursued. Humility has to be pursued because it's not our default. Resist the temptation toward pride. First Corinthians 10 tells us that God, with every temptation, God provides a way out. He always does. When the temptation to be prideful raises its ugly head. Paul said here, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We have to pursue humility and not think too much of ourselves than we ought to think. He says, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with every temptation will make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. We have to pray for and cultivate humility and resist that temptation when it comes. Amen. Thank the Lord for his word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are the great story writer, that you write the best stories. We thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. As we looked at your providence, Lord, we thank you that our life is not controlled by fate and by, by luck and by happenstance and by chance and by a series of coincidences. But no, Lord, our life is governed by someone. Our life is shepherded by someone. Our life is controlled by someone, and that someone is you. You are the sovereign God who superintends all the affairs, who oversees all the affairs of our life. 
And Lord, we thank you that our life is not left up to just random things happening. Lord, that is so great of an assurance for us that our life is not just some random series of events. Lord, our life is governed by you. The events of this book that we've been reading and preaching through are governed by you. Lord, let us see, as I talk about practicing your presence, in other words, knowing that you are with us, affirming that you are with us, and affirming that you are governing all the affairs of our life. Let us practice your presence, being assured that you are in control, that you are putting us where you want us to be, where we are right now, and that you are governing our lives ultimately to your glory. And Lord, let us look to Christ. Let us be humble like our Savior. Let us pursue humility like Christ. Help us, Father, in our weakness. Help us to forsake pride because we know that pride comes before destruction. And help us to pursue humility to your glory. In Christ's name I pray, amen.